Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and everyday legal stories that affect us. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. So, you know, when I think about some of my favorite bands from when I was growing up and in college, Earth, Wind, and Fire was one of them. And they take their name from some of the ancient elements. And today, although we're talking about modern science, we're going to be talking about those ancient elements, Earth, Wind, Fire, and Water, with our colleague, Buzz Thompson. That's right. And uh, Buzz, a longtime colleague and friend, is the Robert E. Paradise Professor of Natural Resources Law here at the law school. Uh, He's a founding director of our Natural uh, Resources Program, a director and senior fellow of the Woods Institute for the Environment. We're thrilled to have you with us, Buzz. It's great being here, and I'm pleased to be here. I was afraid for a moment that I was the ancient element. (laughs) No, not at all. You're younger than springtime. (laughs) But speaking of the seasons and climates, we've recently come through a season here in California with more wildfires really than ever and worse wildfires. Can you tell us a little bit about where that's coming from? I think the key aspect of this, Pam, is that they are worst wildfires. There have certainly been years in the past in California's history when we've actually had more wildfires than we had in the past year. But the wildfires in this century have been much worse than before, not only in California, but also in the Western United States as a whole. And in fact, some scientists who've looked at the statistics have found that over the last 18 years that we have actually burned about 10 million more acres than would have been expected based on prior wildfire history. That's about the size of Massachusetts and Connecticut combined. And is this uh, buzz climate? I mean, is it just drier or more extreme, windier? What's happening? So certainly the size of the fires is in part a result of climate change. It's warmer today than it was in the past. And as temperatures go up, evapotranspiration rates go up, which basically means that all those trees, all of the brush are actually uh, exuding more water Uh, than they did before. So So they're drier. drier. Yeah, so they're drier. In addition to that, the dry season in California and much of the western United States is longer than it was before. It used to be we would get rain, say, in uh, by Halloween. Now, frequently, we don't get rain until late November, early December. So that means also that not only are they drier, but they remain drier for a longer period of time than before. And I know a lot of wildfires. I was in Yosemite this summer, and they had a map of kind of like lightning strikes in the park that some of these wildfires would start whether there were any human beings nearby or not because they're they're 
they're kind of, you know, lightning strikes and then trees catch on fire. But are some of these fires the product of man-made stuff? I mean, is that part of what's accounting for more fires as well? Sure. So, you know, fires are caused by a variety of different factors. Uh, Lightning strikes can be one. Uh, And in fact, if you look at the history of of California and the Western United States, uh, pre-humans, uh, all of the plants here basically adapted themselves uh, to wildfires. So we should expect wildfires in this particular area. But once we enter the stage, then wildfires become even more common. Humans start wildfires uh, themselves. And one of the things that we have found recently is that some of the wildfires were caused by or probably uh, caused by um, uh, uh, electricity transmission lines. And. Uh, uh, an earlier guest of ours, our old friend Tom Heller, uh, put forth the proposition that maybe we just can't bring electricity to so many people who have now put themselves in harm's way, as it were. What do we do about this? Is this going to be kind of an endemic problem about how to have safe electricity to the many people who are living in these exurban areas? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a serious problem. I mean, it's actually part of a much broader problem, which is that it used to be that we were limited to relatively small urban areas. And now, as people have moved out into these suburban or rural areas, Uh, Not only do fires become more likely, but furthermore, when there is a fire, it's going to cause a lot more damage. But the particular point that you raised, Joe, is, well, what about supplying them with electricity? I have to admit, I would hate to be a PG&E executive, (laughs) right? Because, you know, for example, with the campfire fire, one of the things that PG&E had to decide was whether or not it was going to shut down power to all these people because the conditions – were fairly positive for a fire. Well, you know, if they had shut down electricity, they would have had outraged customers calling them. Uh, so you can imagine that person deciding, well, maybe I'll keep that power on a little bit longer, but oh, damn, there's a fire. So one other question I had about this was, um, I read somewhere, and I don't know how much this explains the the rise in these huge mega fires in a way. It used to be that if there was a forest fire, it'd be like a small fire and then it would burn itself out. And now we don't let those fires start. So there's more brush on the ground. Is that is that part of the problem as well? Yeah. So there are multiple things that are contributing to both the number of fires in a particular year as well as to the uh, uh, to how bad that particular fire is. Uh, And another is what you just put your finger on, Pam, which is that we've had a policy of really trying to keep wildfires from breaking out. That means that we also have a lot more dense underbrush uh, that can increase the probability of a fire and also how bad that fire is going to be. And how about uh, raking our leaves? Uh, as our president, I think, suggested the Norwegians do. The Finns, please. That's absolutely right. I mean, we should all be raking our leaves, Joe, but not in order to try to create or try to stop forest fires. Well, I'm, I'm disappointed that won't help because I'm ready to do my bit. Uh, what would help? You mentioned maybe we should uh, allow some of these smaller fires to continue to burn. You don't have a solution to PG&E for us. You just kind of restated the problem they're facing. Uh, What can we do? 
Yeah. So several things. Number one, we do have to adopt a policy in our forests of actually letting fires burn on a limited basis. Of course, there's no easy answer here, Joe, because sometimes you let a fire begin to burn on a limited basis and then the winds come up uh, and that fire then becomes a conflagration and people are upset about that. But we do need to let fires uh, burn on a more limited basis in order to avoid this development of brush. And then the most important thing that we could be doing is addressing climate change. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with our colleague Buzz Thompson about climate change, earth, wind, fire, and water. And I wonder if we could turn to water now because really – Although what you just said was like so interesting, and I know you've studied that, you're really a water guy, aren't you? Yeah, water water is my love. So tell us a little bit about where we are now with, with water. We could talk for several shows about water, Pam, and I'd be happy and to. And we'd love to have you come and do several shows on water. <laughs> yeah. We could do salt water. We could do rivers. We could do ponds. We could do estuaries. But That's right. But in terms of uh, of water as a whole— in the Western United States, what we're finding is is that, number one, uh, droughts are becoming more frequent uh, and bad droughts are becoming even more uh, frequent. Uh, there is a, uh, a term also that has been uh, recently coined of water whiplash. Uh, so particularly here in California recently, what we've found is we come out of one of the worst droughts in California history, and then we have the wettest year in California history. So we're also boomeranging uh, between really rainy years and uh, really dry years. But the bottom line is more than anything else, we're seeing uh, a significant rise in droughts. Those droughts are becoming worse. So maybe the easiest way of putting this is from a water standpoint, we're screwed. You know, one of the ironies is, of course, on the in the western part of the United States, we're having these droughts and too little water. And then in parts of the east, we're having too much water. If you think about the Gulf of Mexico and hurricanes, those are dumping a lot more water than they used to dump. When we talk about climate change, the most important thing to recognize is climate change is about extreme events. So those areas that have had droughts in the past will probably have more droughts and worse droughts. Those areas that have encountered floods in the past are going to encounter more flood events. While the western United States and particularly the southwest has been worried about droughts, the number of extreme rainy days in the northeast, in the midwest, in the Great Plains has increased dramatically over the last 20 years. What do we do, uh, uh, Buzz? I, I know your summary is we're screwed, but I also know that you've had a lot of proposals uh, to help us deal better with the water we have. And I know some of the proposals are kind of monetized things. Let's use water for its highest and best use. Why don't you pick some proposals and kind of share them with that? Maybe you can start with that one. Would that solve our problems? Or is water being wasted, quote unquote, growing rice in the Central Valley? Okay. So you put a lot of questions in yes. there, Joe. If I were in my litigation mode, I would You'd, have objected to that particular okay. question. <laughs> but there are a variety of things that we can do in the face of growing water shortages. Uh, the very first thing we can do is to encourage conservation. 
just like the primary answer to energy is conservation, the primary answer to water shortages uh, is also conservation. Some of that will take place on a voluntary uh, basis. Um, the public has shown its ability to step forward uh, and conserve in the face of water shortages. So fewer lawns? I'll admit I have a lawn in my backyard. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have done, though, is I went out and I got a, um, a smart uh, irrigation control system. Uh, so my irrigation system actually adapts to the particular weather. It shuts itself down automatically if it begins to uh, uh, to rain. Uh, and as a result of that, even though, as I say, I still have a small backyard, uh, I actually consume about uh, 60% less water than I did before I got that smart irrigation controller. So there are a variety of ways in which people can conserve uh, water, but some people do it on a voluntary basis. We also should increase the price of water. Water is an extremely precious resource, and yet in much of the United States, water is less expensive than energy. It's less expensive than cell phone, and so we need to price water so that people actually begin to recognize how precious it actually is. This is Stanford Legal, and we're talking with our colleague Buzz Thompson about earth, wind, fire, and water. And now we're talking about water, Joe. And Buzz, you, you didn't quite pick up my attempt to lay the blame on the rice farmers in, in Central Valley, but you have talked about pricing water uh, uh, more accurately. Who wins from w cheap water in the short term? I know we all lose because there's misallocations. How would water use change if we priced it? So if we actually priced water to reflect uh, its true scarcity, uh, then what we would find is, is that virtually everyone would presumably use less water. And to the degree that farmers were raising particular crops that didn't justify uh, the amount of water that they were utilizing, they would switch to other crops because the value of the water is then pushing them uh, in the direction of either using less or growing crops that justify the amount of water that's being utilized. And that brings me back to rice farmers. Rice farmers have got a lot of criticism over time in California because it doesn't seem to make very much sense to most people to be using a lot of water to grow rice, which it requires, uh, in the middle of California. However, actually, there's a great benefit of rice farmers, which is that effectively they're creating wetlands in California. And we've destroyed about 95% of our natural wetlands in California. So in order to provide habitat for migrating bird species, rice farmers are actually a pretty good deal to the degree that the Nature Conservancy actually has a program in the Central Valley of California right now called uh, Bird Returns. Uh, and what the Nature Conservancy does is that it uses highly sophisticated uh, uh, algorithms to predict where birds are going to be migrating at any particular point in time. And then they run a reverse auction with rice farmers, where rice farmers tell them how much 
the Nature Conservancy would have to pay them to keep water on their fields at particular points when the birds are going to be there. The Nature Conservancy then takes those lowest bids and pays those farmers actually to keep water on their fields longer than they otherwise would. Another way of thinking about that program is that it's like pop-up wetlands uh, or Airbnb for migrating <laughs> birds. Which just illustrates, I guess, how complicated the interaction of the various aspects of our ecosystem are. Because presumably one of the things those birds do is they keep down pests. But at the same time, having those wetlands allows species that otherwise wouldn't have a place to go to have a place to go. I mean, in our clinic, for example, we have a Supreme Court litigation clinic here at Stanford. We represented um, the Center for Biological Diversity and its concern with what are called ephemeral ponds, ponds that exist only for part of the year. And uh, our, our kind of client, if you will, there was the dusky gopher frog. And who knows which species will turn out to be important going forward. And another way of thinking about that, Pam, is that we've done a really good job over the past 200 years destroying a lot of the natural habitat that these species need. And so we need to, number one, make sure that we protect as much of that natural habitat as remains. And then in addition to that, we have to think about creative ways of developing new habitat, like bird returns, to make up for the habitat we've destroyed. Well, we have a bird bath in our backyard. So again, you're doing your part, we're Joe. doing my part. You're you doing are, your Joe. part. <laughs> well, we'll be back with more from our guest, Buzz Thompson, talking about climate change and the environment next on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. And Buzz, before the break, we were talking about water law uh, and really water policy and water science, but there's a lot of law involved here. And one of the many incredibly interesting things that you've done is the Supreme Court asked you to be a special master in a water case, a lawsuit between the states of Montana and Wyoming. And I should say for our listeners that being appointed a special master, first of all, it's a huge honor because the Supreme Court picks these people. You don't apply for this job. They pick you. They call you up and they ask you to do it. And it's like being a judge for the Supreme Court. So tell us a little bit about the case and what it was about and how you approached it. Yeah. So, Pam, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a really uh, both a privilege and a pleasure uh, to get to be a special master. The case was a case called Montana versus Wyoming. As background for the listeners, in the United States, most of our rivers are interstate rivers. In fact, about 90% of all the water that we get in the United States is from an interstate river. And because of our federal system, when you have an interstate river, one of the first things you have to do is to figure out, well, how much water does each of the states through which that river flows get? In the case of my river, it was the Yellowstone River system, and the Yellowstone River system begins in Wyoming, defies gravity by flowing north into Montana, and then further on into North Dakota before ultimately feeding into the Missouri River. So one question is how much water goes to Montana, how much goes to Wyoming, how much goes to 
North Dakota. Because the first state to get the river as it flows through could theoretically just build a dam right before the state border and keep all the water for itself. That's right. Wyoming, which is again the uh, uh, upriver state in that particular case, could keep all of the water for itself. Montana, Wyoming, and North Dakota had actually thought ahead. And in 1950, they had negotiated a compact. It's like a domestic treaty dividing the waters of the Yellowstone River between the three states. But in the, oh, 68 years since then, those three states have never been able to agree on exactly what the compact says. Now, when there's a dispute between states or among states in the U.S., the only court that can hear those disputes is the United States Supreme Court. You can't go to district court. You can't go to state court. You have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court is very busy. They really do not have the time to take testimony and to actually try a case. So they appoint somebody as a special master to come in, hear all of the pretrial proceedings, then hold a trial and make recommendations to the Supreme Court, at which point the Supreme Court steps in and makes the final decision. So my role as a special master was to serve in that particular role. And it was absolutely fascinating. Ended up with a three-month trial in Billings, Montana, where all of the various users of the water and all of the various experts came together and talked about uh, the various facts and legal issues in the uh, in the case. And I should say these these original jurisdiction proceedings happen all over the United States. When I was a law clerk at the Supreme Court, there was a case that went on for decades that involved the original 13 colonies, now the 13 states, and lawsuits over where exactly the boundary between their waters and federal waters existed. So there were questions. I, I still remember a famous example that in which the Supreme Court held that uh, the um, East River was not a river. It was a juridical bay. Justice Blackman said he later got a, a letter from somebody who said, well, if you don't think this is a river, I invite you to try and cross it without getting your feet wet. But I mean, there, 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 there's that. Mississippi and, and Louisiana are always suing yeah. over the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting about the original jurisdiction cases involving water is that it reflects today the scarcity of water again. I would say that historically over like say the last hundred years, the Supreme Court would get an interstate water dispute maybe once or twice a decade. A year ago, there were five cases uh, involving interstate waters before the US Supreme Court. What also was interesting was that three of them involve Western or Midwestern states where water has always been a matter of controversy. But one of them uh, involved the states of Florida and Georgia who were arguing over a river system that began in Georgia and flowed down into uh, Florida. Another involved a groundwater dispute between Mississippi and Tennessee. You would have never have seen those type of disputes 20 years ago. And it again shows the increasing uh, amount of litigation and disputes around water resources. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with our colleague, Buzz Thompson, 
about natural resources law. Joe? Buzz, you were talking about the disputes that states are having over natural resources. And of course, in the West in particular, we know that another set of disputes is between the federal government, which owns a lot of land, and people that are making use of the land. They might be mining on it. They might be grazing on it. They might be involved in, in tourism. And the question is, who gets to control the land? Should it be made, for example, into a national park, a national monument? And you've got a special class that has looked at some of these issues. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, maybe we should actually take a step back for some of your listeners in the eastern United States to note that the federal government owns an immense amount of land in the western United States. Over two-thirds of the western United States is owned by the federal government. And there are some states like Nevada where virtually all of the land is actually owned by the federal government. And this has been a source of controversy for at least 100 years now. From the standpoint of many people like me, all of this federal land is great because it means that there are vast amounts of the western terrain, beautiful areas such as Yellowstone or Yosemite, which I can visit and I can enjoy. Uh, but to a lot of the local residents, this is a federal government, which is thousands of miles away, controlling how local land is utilized. And so that's led to a lot of tension and in some cases to actually uh, uh, armed conflicts uh, between the local residents uh, and, uh, uh, and the federal government. So this year I decided that it would be worthwhile to hold a class uh, on public lands. Uh, the name of the class was These Lands Are Our Lands. And the whole goal of it was to help the class understand these conflicts. So not only did we discuss them in the classroom here at Stanford, but we then spent two weeks and we went to Utah and we went to a number of national parks, but we also went to uh, two national monuments, which have been particular sources of conflicts, Bears Ears and the Grand Staircase Escalante. Buzz, can you take us to one issue with respect to one of those conflicts and, and what it was like to see it from the ground up, so to speak? Let me take you to Bears Ears. Bears Ears is in the southeastern corner of the state of Utah. It was declared to be a national monument by President Obama. It is a packed uh, with Indian uh, archaeological uh, sites. And President Obama created it as a national monument at the request not only of conservation groups in the area, but also a number of Native American tribes. One of the first things that President Trump did when he became president was to order a study of, grants, of uh, uh, Bears Ears uh, and he has decided to shrink the size uh, of Bears Ears. Sort of uh, like Vincent van Gogh just cut off one ear. But in many ways, he cut off both ears in this particular case. And Somewhere like certain, a bullfighter. Yeah, left little stubs uh, of Bears Ears. So what we did in the class was we actually not only traveled to look at 
bear's ears. Uh, but we met with one Native American who talked about how this had been the ancestral home and how this had always been an area which was sacred not only to his tribe but to other tribes in the area. Immediately after that, we met with a local uh, county supervisor who talked about the heavy hand of the federal government, how the federal government was always telling the locals about what they could do on the federal lands. That was the type of conflict that the students were able to hear firsthand through this class. And it's just too bad that the public as a whole cannot. I think that's right. I mean, I wish the public as a whole could have you as a teacher because they would learn so much from that. So I want to thank you so much for coming on our show today. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the SiriusXM app.